Good morning to the uh, UK Column viewers and listeners. Thank you very much for joining us today. I have a very special guest, and uh, this is a gentleman called Leon Cryer. He is a consultant in architect architecture and urban planning. And uh, if you search for him, one of the things that you're going to find is that he was the I'll call him the mastermind. We'll see what his reply is. The mastermind to Poundbury, uh, which was a new settlement which was uh, created with, a, with the help of Prince Charles. So Leon, very interesting man. Uh, he got in contact with the UK column because he'd been watching some of our uh, work and reports. And that led to a fascinating discussion on the telephone. And uh, we're going to, or was it a Zoom call? It was probably a Zoom call. Um, we're going to revisit some of that conversation. But first of all, let's bring Leon on screen. Thank you very much for agreeing to join us today. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, good morning. I'm very pleased to be talking to you because I've been trying to contact you <laughs> over, over a time. Uh, because, uh, you know, I'm basically occupied with architecture and urban planning. And it's a subject which is very largely ne neglected by uh, large media. And uh, though it is a, a central subject, I tried, you know, for instance, something you were talking yesterday on your program about uh, uh, banks cutting, cutting unpleasant people, or what they believe to be people who don't really belong to the new, modern, brave new world. In Germany, there was a scandal three years ago where the most brilliant journalist, uh, <coughs> Ken Jebsen, is a formidable journalist who pioneered uh, in making critical interviews uh, with scientists and politicians and theologians and philosophers. And you know, whenever there was an interesting person, Ken Jebsen would interview him. And he had his bank account cut because he, w he didn't agree with the official COVID policy in Germany, and so that's how they dealt with him, and he's now living nobody knows where. So we are, and I found, I looked around, I listened a lot to, I was locked up in Guatemala with my wife in my own project, <laughs> having a critical daily, daily view of my own work, you know. And that's when I, I started to, to look around for, for news and uh, or reliable news or something which would be not the official garbage news which you get on, on the mainstream media, unfortunately. And, and so I discovered UK Column. And, and I thought it was very important that also you talk about architecture and particularly about town planning because you know, there is now, in the last two years, the concept has been circulated uh, a 15 minute city which is really a misnomer because what officially one is talking about is not 15 minute city is 15 minute suburbs and i i i felt that you know, in the near future combining cbdc central bank digital currency surge credits as they have in in china with a 15-minute uh, suburb, that is the ultimate prison for mankind. And uh, whereas we have been, or I have been particularly uh, since the early 70s, um, more mid-70s, to, to discover the, the virtue of the 10-minute city, because that is what historically 
all major city creations in the world were based on this idea of what can you walk in 10 minutes and within this uh, diameter of five minute radius you should have virtually all the citizens should have all the amenities and all the possibilities for work and you know education and uh, whatever daily and weekly life within walking distance this is what generated city urban orders in Assyria 3,000 years ago, in China for the last 2,000 years, in South America, and particularly in, in Greek, in, in Persia, Greece, and Europe. And we are in the inheritor of this idea, but it has been because of mechanical means of transport and telephone and electronic communication. This idea has supposed to be overtaken or historicized, that it's an idea which was past and therefore no more useful. And um, I discovered this idea because I grew up in a fantastic city, in Luxembourg City, which was a perfect model of this 10-minute city because the town center was that size and the other uh, urban quarters around it were separate, not only separate entities, but geographically separate because there are deep canyons and valleys and parks which surround every one of these districts, which was an idea which was, I lived as a child and as an adolescent, and it worked perfectly, you know. And um, I then, when I started studying uh, modern urbanism, I found that all these ideas have been thrown out of, you know, the garbage heap of, of history, as the Marx, Marxists would say. And therefore, we have now the, the town which has no limit, which is in fact no longer a town, but is a suburb. That not only the suburbs are suburban, but the centers are suburban too, meaning that they have a single function. No. Um, and it is this movement between the different single-use zones, which is, of course, in the United States, is the most extreme realization of this. And, um, and then if you, if you think that fossil fuel and all that allows, which allows now, on which this massive uh, mobilization of society is based, if that goes critical, and, and we know that fossil fuels are limited, uh, uh, limited uh, uh, energy, that we have to think in other ways how to organize the future, another geographic uh, organization, so that we don't need to, to waste uh, this precious energy source. And uh, I then analyzed towns historically and also geographically. And then you realize that, in fact, Paris was reformed in the 18th, in 19th century by under Napoleon III into 20 uh, arrondissements. And each of these arrondissements, which is like districts, has four urban quarters with its own town hall. And each of these arrondissements is like a town in itself. This was a reform by Napoleon's uh, chief planner, uh, Baron Haussmann, who reformed uh, Paris, which had before this reform, uh, several hundred parishes. Now, they were like micro-cities. But under Haussmann, you had, you had suddenly an, uh, a city concept which is no longer based on, on religious communities. Uh, organizations, but on civic organizations. And that became then the model which was theorized in, in Vienna in 1900 by a famous architect, Otto Wagner, 
And in Helsinki, by another very interesting architect called Eliel Sarinen, and they, in a way, proved to me, had already a model, which I then expanded and published and became in America. New urbanism uh, is called that way, using this concept of 10-minute cities. Now, the 15-minute city against which people now in, in Newcastle or in Oxford or in Glastonbury, I think I heard yesterday, protest is correct because they feel there's some this kind of a kind of social prison <laughs> total social control which is being prepared which is totalitarian and evil it's not it's not a good uh, innocent intent it's done by people who have a very little uh, uh, i don't know <laughs> generous feelings about humankind and uh, it's a great danger but that is the problem, that now by misuse of a term, you can uh, throw out a concept which is absolutely important for the future. And Prince Charles, now King Charles, uh, uh, read this stuff and uh, uh, we met and uh, he agreed with this because I think anyone who studies the, the subject will agree that this is a rational approach to the future of, of urban in England, there was something interesting about uh, Ebenezer Howard. In the 19th century, Ebenezer Howard should, we should stop London ex uh, exploding like an oil slick, but rather have independent cities, satellite towns around London, which would allow uh, people uh, you know, to live in the country, but then travel to town by, or be occupied by, by local industries or travel to town by train, so that all these cities' satellites were meant to be organized on a railway network. And, but I say that even if we had, and that is really my basic idea, even if we had fossil fuels forever, and an Tesla energy no, free of charge forever, we should still go back to the idea of the traditional town, because that is the ideal the ideal way to create, to allow uh, human communities to form bonds which go beyond the purely self-interested uh, daily needs and weekly needs, but create real civic society. So that is, you know, that's the basic idea. Now that you didn't, you, you could not learn in school because nobody taught that. So I, I did the first course of that in, at the, uh, Architectural Association in London in 1974-1975 taught myself and then applied this in Luxembourg and in Washington and uh, in Guatemala and, and also in Poundbury, which is actually still building. We are where now we just started the last quarter uh, building and um, it's going very well. I was there last week and uh, and so on. That's a, an amazing journey through a lot of subjects. Uh, if I just summarise it a little bit, and I, th I think it's you, you came out with something which is very simple and obvious, but I'm thinking, yes, I hadn't thought about that. But of course, cities, any city growing originally would be, that growth would have been on the basis that the ordinary person walked um, maybe you had to be more affluent to have a horse to give you access to greater distances and speed. 
but uh, initially people were going to be walking to go about their business, to do their shopping or to uh, go to their place of work. And um, we are so used to now a system where we can get in the car and drive distances or take a train or a tram or, or, an, or an aircraft to get to somewhere that the distances have uh, the meaning of distance has almost been lost to us in some cases. And if we go to America, which you've mentioned, it changes again because people are prepared to use their cars to drive really what we would consider in England quite vast distances in order to go shopping. So many people in America um, would think nothing of driving 40, maybe 50 miles to do a a weekly shop, but that would be something extraordinary for us here in UK. So the business of people walking, because that's the way they normally do their business, is is as I say a very simple thing. But it's one of the, one of the things that we tend to overlook. I, I listening to what you say, and then I'm thinking we've got two things going on. We've got the design of cities if life was normal, if I'm allowed to use that expression, and people were going about their everyday lives free of interference by higher authorities. Um, the, the way a city developed or the way a local community developed um, would come about by ideas and interaction with communities. But it would be, I don't like this word because it's a bit overused, but it would sort of be an organic growth amongst the people of that society, maybe with some expert opinion coming in from elsewhere. But we've now reached a stage where it's very clear that the development of society and the development of cities is, is going to be influenced and controlled by an emerging political agenda. And what am I thinking about here? I'm thinking about the fact that we have um, global associations of city mayors. Uh, we have the city-state, which is now being mentioned, not as, the best, um, not as the best environment for people to live in, but the city-state as a new way that global control of people can be taken above and beyond the nation-state. So I'll throw this back to you, but it, it's just my way of looking at it. What would life, what would like be like, sorry, what would life be like if people were allowed to get on and plan their lives themselves versus the fact that we clearly have a global elite at the moment saying they are going to tell us how we can plan our lives and our cities for the futures. Do, do you think that's a reasonable breakdown in comparison of, of the two areas? Yes, the, you know, the idea of planning a society, uh, which has been very popular within you know, modern thinking, rational, rational society and uh, Saint-Simonian ideas of engineering, controlling the world like, an, uh, like a, a clock, you know, and that once all that is functioning, it will be perfect because everything will be rational and uh, and so on. And but this is a mistake. I think it's an, an, because life is too complex to plan completely. <laughs> and somebody said we will know the plan for our life 
uh, on our deathbed huh? because we think we have a plan, but it never is what we planned. Huh? Some, and therefore, also the connections which which a community allow, which are basically initially cities were really founded uh, first around the marketplace where you know, it was work work sharing. You know, somebody who's good at at uh, building uh, a plow may not be so good at uh, building a craft or something, a vehicle, and so on. So, it's, uh, cities were formed around market, you know, exchange of, of materials, of ideas, and also of uh, uh, of meeting people. And it is this through this common interest and sharing uh, our abilities with with the larger communities that that. Um, society uh, forms bonds which function for a while. Uh, today, uh, I mean, the, in the industrialization and the discovery of fossil fuel uh, you know, with mining and so on um, changed all that because suddenly the energies which were at our disposal by our own muscular and animal uh, companions, <laughs> as we could call them now, uh, was changed Geometrically, I mean, the, the quantity of energy which we now use uh, as a person and as societies are in, incomparable to what the traditional societies used. And this leads to a general acceleration of, of, uh, of events, of uh, activities, but also to kind of hubris of, what, of human abilities that we think that we are cleverer and we are much more advanced than societies before. And particularly, I mean, I, it became so evident to me in architecture because you know, we grew up, or the general atmosphere, young people who read, when, when I started reading, what was relevant was Le Corbusier and all these, you know, Gropius and the, the, uh, Nicolas Pesner, the found foundations of modern architecture, that this was a bright new world which was far superior to anything which had been before. But looking at the evidence where I grew up in the town I grew up and comparing that to the buildings which were going up with this kind of bright new ideas, I thought, how can, can this be compared? I mean, we are building junk. Now, I was working uh, for James Sterling in London briefly on a an, on an project for over 2,000 housing units in a new town, Rancon. And we knew in the office, the way we are planning this is going to be, has no future. It will be kind of uh, just slum and uh, prefabricated slum. And what happened is that the architect, the master, he imposed this, not only the form, but also the construction method. And nothing worked the way it was planned because instead of being prefabricated, it was cast in situ because it was cheaper. And the panels, which looked like the buildings are prefabricated, were fake. They were just stuck onto a traditional uh, construction. And these buildings stood for 10 years, over 2,000 housing units, town center housing in Rangkorn. And uh, I refused to work on it after three months. I said, uh, Mr. Sterling, I can't work on this. I can't sleep anymore. I think this, this is going the wrong way. So he gave me other jobs. But, you know, these were destroyed 10 years later. The city still gets money from payments of the Rancon Development Corporation until 2025 for buildings which disappeared in 1985. 
And that was not unique. That was a general case of new housing, and that's why uh, Mrs. Satcher stopped this, because it was a waste of ideas, a waste of money, a waste of energies, and particularly a diseducation of the architects, the builders, and generally the public. The public retained a love for traditional architecture uh, because they didn't know what fraud was going on, you know, in, <laughs> clearly every, every day. And um, then some scandals, uh, uh, there was an, a tower which blew up because there was a gas leak and so on. There was a critical review of this, and Prince Charles was the first public and the only public personality who protested because he visited these uh, slums, you know, and people protested. They said, we don't like it. And so he was the first public person. And I, I'm not a royalist. I never thought much of Prince Charles before uh, I heard him speak about architecture. I thought, my God, this guy really, no, he's an honest person. He knows something is really terribly wrong and which must be righted. He did this speech at uh, Hampton Court, which was created scandal amongst architects. But I remember I was in England and I lived in England. And I remember everywhere for several weeks, everybody in the street, in the pub, in the schools, in the office, every, every, everybody agreed with him. <laughs> it was kind of a common agreement that he is a, a person no, it's of as enormous uh, audience, and he tells the truth. And so I, I sent him my, my stuff, my publications, and so on, and, uh, and we, we then met, and I was then later put in charge of the Poundbury project. But to do that project, which is when you visit it, it's a, rather, it's a traditional town, people can't believe that this was difficult to do, because... It looks just like another English town. No. Um, maybe not as good as Oxford or, or the, the Great or Mayfair, but there's something which people generally like without... They say, where are the people? I say, have you visited England? Suburbs, they are dead after nine o'clock. <laughs> we have at least some streets where there's kind of mixed use. Because to reintroduce some of these values of mixed use and community into a new project was virtually impossible. And we, unfortunately, for, five, for four years, we had to debate virtually against the, the prince's organization. Um, and even the town council in the district council in Dorchester. But we had some people like Prince Charles was absolutely, he knew this was the right thing to do. And also in Dorchester, in the, the, the chief architect of the West Coast District Council, David Oliver, we immediately, you know, when he saw, when we met, we immediately knew this is going to work. He said, you know, you can't do this. <laughs> Whereas everybody else said, oh, but this is very, very difficult. You know? <laughs> so because the planning, the way in the last 200 years, the, the societies were reorganized through a specialization of work and uh, a separation of labor, craftsmen, virtually no craftsmanship. A craftsman, to understand, the craftsman is a person who has enormous knowledge, enormous practical knowledge uh, linked to his abilities, you know, which spring out of his abilities. 
and architecture architects were surrounded by 39 uh, traditional crafts. Each of these crafts had an encyclopedia of, of knowledge, of practical knowledge, but also the terminology, the ideas, and the availability of materials. They were in these heads, so that each craftsman was like an extraordinary um, uh, human being. Uh, whereas now, modern workers, whether they work in office or in, you know, in a factory or, or in agriculture, they, they virtually know nothing but pushing a few buttons. And uh, it's what uh, David Graeber called bullshit jobs. It's like a dehumanization of, the, of society. And it is this traditional crafts and knowledge and culture which allowed architects with three drawings to do fantastic buildings. Now architects occupy themselves for four years to draw drawings which have nothing to do with architecture, which have to do with legislation, with pipes and uh, the latest norms about lighting and I don't know what. And uh, which are generally nothing to do with the practical reality of building a nice, pleasant and comfortable and workable world. It's to do with occupying bureaucracies and uh, specializations which we don't need. And how to, to get out of this is almost, there's no plan. Now, there were, until the Soviet Union collapsed, there were still some people dreamt that socialism may be a way out. Fascism had been you know, disqualified by, by the horrors of, uh, of, uh, of slaughter and, and uh, warmongering and corporate uh, uh, criminality. And, but today there is no common model how to get out of this. I know that what we do, traditional architecture, urbanism, if that was imposed by authoritarian fiat with the worst society in the world, something would be better than, than what is building now. Because what is building now is, is totally out of control. It's to do with, you know, there's a parallel in architecture of course, architecture and town planning uh, very much are linked to the economy. But zoning, which was practiced in town planning, now officially since the Second World War, because it came in 19th century, late 19th century, early 20th century, because one wanted to get, you no know, industries were so polluting that one wanted to separate work from uh, residents and, and urban activities, which was based on, on an idea that you don't want to pollute uh, people. <laughs> no. uh, but on the other hand, modern industries, uh, socially, they are so controlled and legislatively that they are not allowed to, uh, you know, to spoil, to have uh, too much toxic um, uh, fumes and, uh, and noise and so on. And... Uh, Therefore, one reinvents now new models of how to discipline and how to uh, tyrannize <laughs> the future by the, this idiotic uh, uh, carbon footprint and so on, which has nothing to do with, with climate and, uh, or very little to do with climate. So zoning, advanced capitalism, uh, and the, in a way the dehumanization of work, all that works together. And we don't have a counter-project. We know that the way to build traditional cities was done with enormous 
investment of intelligence and pleasure that my father was, was a craftsman, he was a tailor. And he never complained about his work. He had employees. They never uh, complained about we as children played in the, in the workshop. Because craftsmanship is a culture which is now basically going out of, you know, is, is being battled against by, by governments and by state and by bureaucracy. And um, so it's, I'm, I'm, I'm very generalizing because we, this touches so many subjects and this awareness is not really uh, being spread in, 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 in the media because people are enclosed now in their, uh, with their earphones and iPhones. And, uh, and I hear now that France may be, I heard yesterday from UK column that France is planning to, <laughs> to cut down the internet. And uh, so we are really at incredible speed advancing into totalitarian state of a size and scale which we had never seen before. And at least we, you know, as long as we can talk about it, it's very important to issue, to, to talk about these issues. And I even noticed that Tucker Carlson in one of his last uh, interventions talked about traditional architecture. <laughs> Leon, can I, can I throw some things back at you? This is, we have discussed this before, um, but some of my experiences, I, I was, was I interested in architecture? I suppose I, I was to some extent. I, I, I thought I could recognize a beautiful building when I saw it, but in my early days, uh, matters to do with architecture and certainly urban planning was something just not in my frame of reference. Um, it was only after I left the Navy and I started working in Plymouth that I began to pay attention to things that were happening in Plymouth itself. And I'm going to, if I may, just use Plymouth as a bit of example to chat around some of these subjects. Um, the first thing I got interested in was that there were areas of the city that were having problems. They were uh, deprived areas as a result of mainly the Royal Navy dockyard starting to shrink. And um, going back into the, certainly in the 1920s, 1930s and 40s, uh, the areas around the dockyard in Plymouth were full of the sorts of craftspeople that you've mentioned. There were all sorts of skills from um, wooden boat building and sail making to met metallurgy, uh, everything to do with fitting out ships. And there were a lot of spin-off industry as well. But, but Devonport, the area around the naval base, was absolutely an area of people who had done apprenticeships and become uh, craftsmen in their own right. But as the dockyard declined, jobs became a problem. And if I go into the mid-90s, we ended up in a position where things had got so bad in the Devonport area that uh, there were youths beginning to run riot at, at night and set light to cars and street fights. There were some quite big problems. And it was those events that made me start to pay attention to what was happening in the city. But at the same time, and this was, I, I was a member of the Chamber of Commerce then. Via the Chamber of Commerce, we started to be privy um, to 
what appeared to be Plymouth City Council plans to revitalise Plymouth as a city. And part of the attention was to focus on those deprived areas in Devonport around the dockyard. Uh, we had a couple of agencies set up by the UK government. We had the Government Office of the South West, which was supposedly a government office which was going to help um, development on a large scale and inward investment. Uh, we also had the South West of England Regional Development Agency, and that was, if you like, a more focused agency that would be trying to help specific businesses establish themselves. But between, between the two of these agencies, they also started to talk about larger scale urban regeneration. And the next bit that came with this was that uh, it, was, it was easy to identify the particular, particularly funding streams but some of the documentation around the, the urban planning and regeneration of cities like Plymouth, the financial base was all coming in via European Union funds, um, European Investment Bank, the European Bank of Reconstruction and Development. And what I started to see was an immense pull um, of the agencies in Plymouth towards the purse of money held by the European Union. And then I witnessed policy coming out of presumably European Union planners, which was starting to mould the way that Plymouth and indeed other cities in UK were going to conduct their regeneration. And if, if I simplify this, um, we started to see all sorts of cities and smaller towns across England transformed in a uniform way. We started to see inner city streets pedestrianised. We started to see a uniform implementation of what I call street furniture, which could be anything from the style of the street lighting to the benches that people might sit on. And within a matter of, I would say, 10 to 15 years, the individual characteristics of many UK cities and towns was completely changed in a way which simply conformed to urban planning agendas, which were coming principally out of the European Union. And I, I believe it was a very sad time because many what I saw as quite attractive, we'll say English cities, changed to become something where you weren't sure what they were. The, the high streets became uniform, not only in the street furniture, but also in the types of businesses which occupied the, the shops. We ended up with, with uniform ranks of all the big names in those shops. And the smaller individual traders seemed to get squashed out. And it was at this point that I really started to pay attention to urban planning. Um, but what I'm putting to you is that I believe that I saw certainly in UK, and we're now talking 20 years ago, um, outside planning agendas, creating this uniform 
state of the cities. One, do you know what what, what I'm trying to say here? And two, uh, do you do you think I'm being um, accurate in in what I'm describing, or do you think something else was at work? Well, there are many. Uh, you address many issues, and uh, one is that you say that you are not uh, qualified in 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 architecture and town planning, and but you know if you were naval naval officer, there's architecture on boats. <laughs> I mean, ships are fantastic piece of architecture, and it's one of the last areas where there is competence, not only in planning but also in in, in craftsmanship. And and this is of course different aesthetic to to build a boat requires different aesthetic the conditions to to travel on on the ocean than to uh, to build a house or, or church. But you know, what surprises me most about the, the general because the at least when there's a general statement is that the modern world is not aesthetic. <laughs> It's it's becoming uglier and uglier, and then the you know if it's not ugly enough, you will have the the graffiti and and the advertising and the signage and the horrible lighting and the, and all the garbage which is being dropped even on cities which are okay. And but what what is for me the central point is that you said, but you still you knew when you went somewhere your judgment was intact because you know when you like something or you don't. And liking a place or not liking, that is judgment because it's it's all your senses which operate. It's not just your reason but also your body and, um, and mind and soul who react to something. And generally, in the general decadence, I still see that this kind of sanity left most people still like Beautiful places, <laughs> just by photographing. No, you don't see uh, uh, buses of tourism stopping in some horrible industrial area. People getting out and photographing uh, the environment. No, they stop when there is a nice place to see, when there is a real nice place. And for instance, in Germany, the reconstructions of of the houses, some houses, twenty houses in. Central Frankfurt, or the reconstruction of the historic square and the, the church in Dresden, the castle in Berlin, they have enormous success. People just stream there to, and everybody loves it. No, these buildings have been missing for 60 years, and here they are back, beautifully built. So all the lies which architects and general the the, you know, the Royal Institute of British Architects say you can't do this were lies. Because you can, if you want. Because craftsmen, you always find craftsmen, um, sometimes self-educated, but and also they are com- they can be competitive with industrial processes of production. And um, anyway, if you think about economy, what if you, know, you have, for instance, the 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 problem I mentioned in Rancon town center housing was demolished. And built in a kind of fake, rather poor suburban traditional way. You know. The cost for society to do experiments which are, go so wrong, it's just unbelievable. It can't have anything to do with a sane economy which has plans for the future. So the most important thing which, which I console myself is that people 
majority of people still have retained their judgment of what is a beautiful place by liking or not liking. And that is very important. If you like something, your judgment is 100% right. You know. um, the other one is that you know, this uniform planning, not only in, in Brussels, but also in Washington and in Beijing and in, in Moscow. If you look at the new buildings in Moscow, most of them are garbage just the same garbage as you have in New York or in Los Angeles. Because this kind of uniform disability or loss of culture, how to make beautiful, attractive, and human-scale places. And that is general. It's, it's not just coming out of Brussels, but Brussels is occupied by elite which has been diseducated or miseducated in aesthetics, in economy, in anything to do with making beautiful and humanly scaled places. Um, we, I was very much engaged with uh, social protests and uh, so citizen protests and counter projects in Brussels in the 1970s with a man called Maurice Culot, who was fantastic. Uh, he was the director of the, of the La Combe, which was the best architecture school, where we taught classical architecture for briefly. <laughs> And, but the, close, the school was closed by a minister because it was clearly not in the, in the spirit of time. We proposed, we had a lot of contacts to the European community, and uh, we proposed a project, and I did the project for Luxembourg to create a new capital for Europe, which would be a traditional European town, which with the European uh, communities, the European institutions, which would then be the model for other countries to go back to the traditional European model of city building, which was the same in Stockholm or in Rome or in Athens or, you know, in England. It was a traditional European town. And um, we didn't get the project. We found out later. We didn't get it. We wanted to fund it. I, in the end, funded it myself. And... Um, we didn't get it because we didn't ask enough money. <laughs> Had we asked um, several million, uh, I think it was 50 million Belgian francs at the time, we would have gotten it, but we asked only for 10, you know, which, would <laughs> which was basically to fund our publications. So European community is organized about an elite which are in, in cahoots with very large-scale economic, financial educational, cultural organizations. They are not interested in what people, what they are good at, what they want. They, they really, and town planning, why it is so uniform from Plymouth to Marseille and to, uh, to Berlin and to Moscow, is that there is an, a very small group of people, particularly uh, around Le Corbusier and Gorpius, they were the main, the main lights in the 1930s, who had formulated texts, which when you read them, they are so childish, you think this is not possible, that this could become a major legislative document to re refund urbanism. No. In, fa in fact, uh, Charter of Athens, uh, which was basically drafted by Le Corbusier, is a text which promotes this idea that cities should be separate in zones for housing, for culture, for industry, for warehouses, and so on. And between you have motorways and skyscrapers and so on. And that became the general rule. 
And now to apply this to to existing uh, networks of social and geographic organization was an enormous project. Um, I realized this in the mid-70s when I taught that I did projects in London. We, I took my students uh, on forced marches through social housing schemes in, uh, in Southwark and uh, around London, and which were all terrible, really horrible. No, nobody ever visits these places, but they had replaced. We then, students had to draw what was there before, what was the land ownership, you know, the cadastral, the lines, the properties, what was built first, uh, what was uh, then replaced by, and the massacre of building you know, post-war social housing destroyed large parts of London. Very few people know. and But this was not only... a, a in a, a kind of sort of technical project, but it was also a social project because I remember I had one of the chief planners of Camden in, in one of the juries and one of his assistants. And we laid out what, this, what the quarter was before, how it was destroyed, what the employment was, was what the housing was in different, what the mix used. And this chief of planning of Camden got incredibly crazy, lost his control, shouted at his at his lieutenant, I told you to get rid of these shops, you know. There were some shops left amongst some housing scheme near Little Venice in London. And he got furious. He made a scene in front of students to his lieutenant. How is it possible that there were still some shops left? You see, you know, so it was not only an, a different model of architecture and town planning, but particularly of society. And it is this uh, war against small scale commerce, which is now being destroyed by the waves of COVID uh, criminal politics and you know, virtually none of, of these, the incredible complex network of economic, individual family organized uh, economy has virtually been, the last remnants have been uh, wiped out by, by the last COVID politics. And, uh, but there was a very long project. So it's not only socialism which tried to do this, to replace you know, means of, of uh, production, uh, private means of production by public means of production, but also private commerce by very large-scale corporate um, uh, organizations. And we are still in that, in that process of elimination, and it is self-destructive, because I taught for a while at Yale, New Haven, United States. Now, New Haven was a very beautiful town before the war. It had very elegant center, uh, colonial-style architecture, great university, and so on. And I remember in the 70s when I, I went there, I bought my hats in a shop there. Or, you know, they were elegant... And the, the, the few people who were still working there, they told me how this town was organized. It was a fantastic town, which was destroyed after the war by federal projects to build giant highways going right through town, particularly to, through poor areas where particularly black people lived who were very you know, used as services for the university and for, for the industries around. And uh, this was so radical that uh, not only the highways were built, but 
huge shopping malls and several skyscrapers. And by the time I taught there in the 80s, all this huge shopping mall was dead. The skyscrapers, I was in a hotel, no, in the center on the, on the main square, um, Temple Square, I forget what it's called. But I had, when it rained strong, strongly, I had to move my table away from the window because the rain would come, this was a skyscraper, the rain would come in. So you see, you have like, it's really a self-destructive process because these large monopoly entities, they are not only, they are not able to survive for very long. They have just a project for establishing, destroying, let's say, small-scale market. We occupy that and then we move out to an even larger box because people will now travel even further. And this destructive process, it's not something which could hold, uh, could have a long-term future. So the uniformization was not only in Brussels, but the, it's really under the term of technocracy. Patrick Wood, you probably know Patrick Wood, the writer. He wrote a, a book called Triumph of, of Technocracy, how Europe and how the UN 2030, how all these uh, major political uh, organization, economic organization like the World Economic Forum are coordinated to do something where they know there is no future. It's just survival for the larger and larger economic units. And um, that is, I don't, I always ask my, my friends, where is their counter project? Roger Scruton, you know, I was friends with Roger Scruton. Where is there an economic counter project which one could actually debate in parliament? And there's none. I haven't met anyone so far. <laughs> so maybe, Brian, you know some, somebody. Uh, well, no, unfortunately, I don't. Um, but what an interesting point that there should be uh, there should be sufficient plans put forward that there would be some debate in Parliament. My response to that would be there is no debate on anything in Parliament at the moment, certainly not in UK. It's, it seems that Parliament has, has simply become a rubber stamp for policies that come in um, in all sorts of different areas, whether it's whether it's health or education or it's urban planning, there's just a, a rubber stamp for it. Um, we, we've we've come back there onto this business of of who is driving the agenda. Do we have a problem with cities because people have changed and we don't know what beauty is anymore? You've suggested that's not the case because you've said that people, uh, if you watch tourists at work, they invariably go to the beautiful places. And in fact, UK column team, several of us were up in Scotland for four days and um, it was fascinating watching the tourists there, many uh, many Chinese, Japanese people, but also Europeans, um, walking around and they were fascinated by the architecture. They were fascinated by the individual buildings and they were taking photographs of those buildings um, because of their striking nature and the fact that Edinburgh certainly is a city which has a a character all of its own with the stone building and the squares and still many cobbled streets and crescents. So is it the people that have changed or the fact that we've now got some draconian system which is imposing the design upon us? And I think, I think really in what you've said, and I'm certainly in my own experience, it's this 
beast which is causing the problem. People are not allowed to be imaginative and creative in their own right, because if they come up with plans which are, are different and exciting and, and unique, the next thing that comes on them is this weight of the planning legislation, which says, oh, well, you can't have that building in this zone of the city. And I, I did mention to the, this to you when we spoke originally, when we were just chatting together, that at one stage in Plymouth, um, uh, Tony Blair had been down to visit the city and he was in talking to members of the city council. And one of the things that emerged was that they were describing the zones of the city and who would live in those zones, which social classes would live in the zones. And at that time, I was friendly with a reporter in one of the local papers, and he actually called me a, a few hours after the meeting had finished. He had been present, and he said to me, Brian, I've heard stuff which I, I regard as very scary. They were discussing the zoning of the city and what social classes could live there, and um, the terminology that they were using in their discussion, he said a lot of it to me is sort of paramilitary. He was quite, he was quite disturbed by what he had, he had witnessed. And I'll just add the, the, the icing on the cake was at one point the, uh, the chief executive of the city was complaining that things they were trying to do, there was a backlash and, and the inference was that people in the city were preventing the city council from implementing its, its plans. And Tony Blair's response was to say, well, you've been given special powers, you should use them. And what Tony Blair was re re referring to um, was his legislation giving city councils and local authorities even more power to determine what happens within a, an urban or a, a town environment. So it does seem to me that one of the biggest problem in the world at the moment is the fact that we have people who've put themselves in positions of power. They seem to lack imagination and creativity, and maybe warmth of human kindness, but it's these people that are now pushing out all of these plans for how our cities and towns are to be in the future. And the, they're calling them a 15-minute city, which at the start of, of our discussion today, you're pointing out, well, hang on, this is a misuse of a particular term. So it does seem that the problem is the people who are now in control of the planning are the real problem, not that people have changed and they're incapable of creating anything beautiful. Well, I want to come back to the, you know, what you said about uh, Edinburgh, for instance, and that makes very clear that Chinese or any tourism from, from anywhere who don't know the culture, they come there and they admire it because architecture, unlike spoken language, is a universal language. You don't need translation. Now, beauty is immediate and uh, is transmitted uh, through the five senses, uh, not through some coded uh, language. And so that is very interesting. It's also interesting that the Chinese talking about China. While my hometown, the most beautiful town I grew up in, was a fantastic town, 
is being destroyed by idiotic ideas and, and half-baked, uh, you know, uh, really unthinking. Uh, or think if if you think the modern modern zoning process to the end, it's a criminal it's a criminal attempt uh, to destroy traditional societies, and this has been going on for eighty years now. Um, but uh, that language, which is so universal, is now that my hometown is being destroyed, uh, parts of it have been rebuilt by the Huawei uh, campus in China. Identical, why in Luxembourg it's <laughs> being destroyed. Uh, or the rebuilt part of Heidelberg and, and I think uh, Versailles and so on. Uh, because there is... You know, it's the universality of traditional construction, of traditional architecture and town planning, which is based on human organic needs. Now, we have our legs define the size of, of what we walk uh, pleasantly, not only horizontally, but also say we should have, we should build towns with walkable distances, uh, horizontally and vertically, because what is pleasant to walk vertically is three floors. Five floors is already a stretch. And, but most cities now allow legislation to build well beyond five floors. And that is only because we have cheap energy so far. Uh, and it is this kind of building excessive distances, vertically and horizontally, which means it has, has no future. Particularly building the wrong kind of, uh, uh, using the wrong kind of techniques like glass buildings, in Doha, you know, in, in Qatar, in the desert. It's so absurd. Or Dubai. These have no future once the, the, the fossil fuel becomes so expensive that it can't be afforded. And <clears throat> so there's basically an, a spirit. We talk a lot of, architects talk a lot of uh, spirit of time, zeitgeist. You know, this you know, traditional architecture is not in the zeitgeist. I always say it's it's not only zeitgeist but zeitungeist, which means lack of spirit, no, <laughs> which which marks mo modernism. And um, so, what is what people think that democracy is a very is a precious system, but there's no no debate what democracy should be like. For instance, I always say. I find, try to find maybe Lord Sumption or somebody like that. We, you should contact about this. But how many laws can a modern society afford to have to administer without excessive amount of uh, bureaucracy, which is going to collapse the system? And that is the problem. That, you know, how many laws? Parliament is a machine to make laws. Laws need to be administered. And if they are going out of control, you need to police to police them you know, gently in the beginning and then violently, and or by means which are really uh, terrifying, like the you know, social credits and that sort of thing. So it's very important to have a discussion on what, how many laws should you have about building a town? In fact, five five ideas are enough. You don't need a bureaucracy. When the best part of Luxembourg was built with a fantastic stone bridge, the biggest stone arch in the world, buildings which are now being built in China because they are so beautiful, people want to have them in China, uh, there was no bureaucracy. 
there was one town architect who worked from home, but he was friends with the prime minister and the, you know, the people who invested there. And they had architects from all over Europe. And they had no bureaucracy. This guy would see the plans coming from Paris, and they were beautifully drawn. They made sense, and the money was there. So he, no, he approved it. Now, we deliver in Poundbury. We have now fantastic architects, uh, Ben Pantreed and George Somerville Smith. They, they, they are basically in charge of the, the current phases. We deliver to the West Dorset District Council perfect plans. I have nothing to object. No, I, I used to have to, to correct the chimneys and the size of doors and heights and windows and proportions. Here I would get sick looking at the plans 30 years ago. Now we have such fantastic architects. I don't have to, I just comment here, maybe here, just a little higher, nothing, but just, I look at it for two hours and I approve a whole district. Now, these perfect plans go then to West Dorset District Council and they lie there for a year or two years. For I don't know how many people look at this and there's nothing to say. They should just approve it. They know we, we, we build well. We have fantastic builders, great architects. And, and there's no shortage in the market to, to buy these houses. So why don't they go ahead? Because they want to prove that they are necessary. And bureaucracy, you know, societies should generally be able to, to function by self-regulating. And that and the old, the, the Bobby, the, the famous Bobby, the English Bobby, was symbolic representative of central power. He didn't need to beat up people or tell them what to do. It was just a presence. And now police has to be kind of military occupation force in order to discipline people. And even that doesn't work like we see now in France. So there needs to be what we most need above all is thinkers, constitutional thinkers who have a model of how future societies, how much democracy, in order to have real democracy, how much of it do we need? How many parliamentarians? How long should they sit? Should they sit once a year, maybe? No. Why do they sit for nine months? Making laws nobody needs. No, to prescribe you how high your balustrade has to be. I had in London, uh, in my house had balustrades which were two feet high. Nobody ever fell off. Now they are like four feet high. It's ridiculous. I mean, these legislations coming out of bureaucracies are basically... They are useless they are to promote uh, bureaucrats and they, they are not to improve the world, save energy or save the planet, let alone save the planet. So it's very important and that is what is missing. I you know people like Roger Scruton, they were fantastic philosophers but and they, he also promoted a lot about beauty and he spoke beautifully even on BBC about how much beauty is necessary in music and in architecture. And but we are missing thinkers who can deliver a model of what this future society will be because the industry, the banks, you know, the people in charge in Brussels, they won't. Mrs. van der Leyen proposes a new Bauhaus for Europe. The Bauhaus never produced a single uh, a town which would be worth visiting. They, they built kind of concentration camps for people. I know them in, in, in uh, Dessau and in uh, in Karlsruhe. I visited them and they are insane constructions. And now to talk of the new Bauhaus is totally irresponsible because it, does, it means nothing. It just means no architecture and forever the same boring stuff we have been used to in the last 50 years.
no, architecture and town planning are not in good hands. There are now very good architects, again, who are often self-educated. There is a single architecture school which teaches classical and traditional architecture in a technological way, not just history. No, because the worst, I think there was really a philosophic error and, and uh, I think a crime against humanity is to declare traditional architecture and urbanism as historic. No, this is a historic town. No, it's a town. It's historic because it's older. But that does not mean that it's historic. Historic would mean it has been his historized and therefore you can no longer do it. No, if a town works, it's modern. No, central Paris, what is beautiful about it is modern because it still works, we understand it, and the good parts still work. So this historization of technology is, is I think, a crime against, against philosophy and, and thinking. And so we have to think, if we think of ecology, we have to think of technology which is ecologically uh, ensures that we don't waste the precious resources we have and that we make uh, settlements which are more beautiful. There was Quinlan Terry, one of the rare great architects in England. He said, a beautiful land, an intact landscape is not a landscape without buildings. It's a landscape without modernist buildings. <laughs> because the landscape with classical buildings is always better than a landscape without classical buildings. The, because uh, the traditional buildings, whether it's in China or in South America, or in our cultures, independent of, of the continents, were people, whether peasants or princes, they always produced beautiful buildings. It's a mystery. Why now? This is no longer the case, because even the most powerful people make now very ugly, ugly things. Well, so Leon, that is... We need fundam fundamental thinking. One of, one of the things which is constantly mentioned when there are bad buildings is the fact that they've been built on a very cheap budget. This is, this is something that's always repeated. Um, so we, we have the rise of uh, buildings which are just good enough. They will, they're built, but their lifespan is going to be 25, 30 years maybe. I call them crinkly tin sheds. But we're often told that the problem with the quality of the architecture is because um, there's no money to pay for better buildings. Um, and I've, I've got a little bit of an eye on the clock here, so I'll just I'll throw this question at you. Do, do you think that the people in control of the budgets are ultimately responsible for the poor quality buildings? Or do you, do you think that they are not um, motivated enough to build better and, and to get better value for their money? Well, there have been many attempts now in England because uh, Prince Charles, he, he visited Poundbury and other projects of his projects with ministers and you know, mayors and so on. And they generally agreed that this is the way one should, one should build, huh? even English ministers. But then... When they uh, confront their own bureaucracies, it's very difficult. Uh, you may remember the episode of uh, Roger Scruton, who had an interview with New Statesman, and they made him sound like he was a racist. 
because he was in charge of the beauty commission. And it, it was so terrible that the poor man, he was, he was really affected by this because it was pure manipulation. It was disgusting. So whenever you, you, you swim outside the accepted doxa, you know, you get, you get attacked either as anti-Semite or, or as reactionary, as extreme right. And, and all this terrible lack of debate leads really to totalitarian uh, habits. And um, bureaucracy, it's, very, it's almost impossible to reform no, because you, one should get rid of it, but nobody knows how to get rid of bureaucracy. You would now, place the bureaucracy as, as being the controlling element rather than money and the need to build cheaply. Not really, because there's nobody in such a crime there's nobody individually responsible because it got, got that far that nobody can individually do any, anything which would change for the better, even though there are possibilities. Because, for instance, David Oliver was the chief architect of, of Dorset District Council when we started Poundbury. He and, and I, I helped him often. We, we actually did projects for the villages around when you drive around yeah. Dorset in I forget now the name, San Abbasan. There are many, many new projects which were done by builders, which we employ often, were beautiful new buildings, traditional buildings. And they are possible at the small scale when you have an individual in a bureaucracy who is in charge who can actually help doing something uh, because it's very close to building and to, uh, to, to the reality of, of building. And single individuals can have enormous influence. You have some people like that in, in Norfolk and, and so on. I forget the names, but, uh, but they are individuals. And Poundbury is, happened because of Prince Charles. I, I couldn't stand a chance without him. And, but there are three, four individuals, and there was a politician, David, David Lowe, I think, and a liberal politicians in the council. There were like four people who were responsible for getting this done against the overall the weight of bureaucracy and the, all the ridiculous norms which tried to, to impose suburban models. Um, but it's really the, 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 the difficulty at you know, the leading, what is really driving this basic macro-scale economy, finance, that anything of very large size is nobody really in charge. New towns. I mean, look at Milton Keynes. It's just a horror show of, of architecture, of planning, of uh, distances. Is uh, um, no. Therefore, I, I always say Poundbury is a new town because it's it's really like an independent town in, in in front of the. It's now individuals, but what needs to be done is that the system uh, institutionally. Uh, recognizes that we have educated architects and planners in the wrong way, as doctors have been educated in the wrong way in the last hundred years. You know, they don't look at bodies, they look at protocols, they execute protocols. So nobody is thinking. And that leads, can lead to terrible crime, as we have now. You know, this, uh, we are engaged in terrible crimes in, in, uh, in, in, uh, Ukraine, and you know, we think the Russians are bad. No, we are bad to cause the damn war because we are the driving force behind this war. And 
but how to reform that? I have no clue. I only I was able to to have enormous influence within a very small group of architects and town planners. And we have congresses around the world. There are people uh, even in Thailand to do this kind of work because we don't invent something new. We look, we say, look at what you had because every country in the world had great architecture, poor or rich. And it's to look at these, what we had and what were the resources, the local resources, which give you the material for building new places correctly and and sustainably. Mm. I, I, I refuse to use that term because it's now so misused by disgusting policies which have nothing to do with long-term planning. Mm. Um, I think it's important to have... Con uh, you, Because I think I agree with what, what you talk. Your people are fantastic and I'm... You know, compared to the garbage which the BBC puts out. But it would be important to even for you to have maybe on that level talk to Lord Sumption or somebody like that. To what, what should democracy be like in order to be able to survive? Or you know, how many schools are there in England to educate architecture? There is no, no architecture school in England. They're all called School of Architecture, but they don't teach architecture. Right. <laughs> Um, Leon, we, we've got, uh, we've got, <laughs> my goodness, this is just so fascinating because I've got a lot of questions, but I, I think we should end here because uh, we're, we're about an hour and a quarter at the moment and that's always a good time for people to sit and engage with. What I'd like to ask you is, could we do another session together and could we actually select some images of beautiful cities, beautiful buildings. Would, would you be prepared to do that? Put, put some images forward. Um, we can also have a look at some which aren't so beautiful. And we could, we could have some discussion around this to actually engage the audience in, in what makes a city beautiful, what makes a city work. I think this would be a very interesting um, uh, discussion. And maybe it also helps on when you say, well, what do we do to change this situation? I, I think one of the key things that we have to do is one, recognize what's wrong. We have to show people that something's wrong. And then we have to start talking about what could be done in a better way. So by discussing what makes a beautiful city and what makes a city that works or the quarter of a city that works. Um, I think that would be a very positive topic for another another interview, if you'd be kind enough to do that with us. As many interviews as you like. <laughs> no, and also, you know, there in England, there's many good architects, but they almost all work for private clients. No. There's virtually not a single and only uh, control the lack of control we had in Poundbury was for school, which is a horrible building. And uh, But I gave up after two years of, of trying to, to convince them of doing a better building. So it would be interesting to have you know, people like the, this the traditional architecture group within the, within the RIBA, which was funded by Robert Adam. There are many, many great architects in England to, to talk to. But for these architects to get involved, also Ben Pantreath, for instance, does, does great planning in, uh, in Scotland, Turner, Turner Grain, I think it's called. Beautiful thing, plant 
with very little, built with very little money. Uh, but to talk about this, that there is a choice, because I, I published a book in England called Architecture, Choice or Fate, because schools say you cannot do certain things, which means you cannot do traditional architecture. And what I say is a choice. Now, the traditional town is a choice. If you want to live in a traditional town, nobody should force you to live there, but it should be choice. Democracy is about choice. Now, I just listened to UK column where the last World Economic Forum, somebody talks about we have to use in order to discipline people for the climate change, this nonsense term, uh, we have to use the, the carrot, but also the stick. Yes. <laughs> there should be no yeah. stick. Yeah. Certainly no intellectual stick, because traditional architecture choices are superior kind of architecture which is designed for humans to live comfortably in of any race, any class, any income, and, and in open communities, not in gated communities. Unfortunately, most good architects are now forced to work for gated communities, which is a disaster. They can't design public buildings. Nobody has ever in the last 50 years done a classical building for public authority. No, it's disaster. Competitions for public buildings where the libraries or, or concert halls are always modernist because the juries are modernist. And therefore, you know, your, I think if I understand you well, UK column is about choice, not about fate. And therefore, propose models for different, I'm, I'm ready to talk okay. as much as you want. Well, that, that, would, that would be fantastic because uh, I, I think locally we can produce some good images to have some discussion on and uh, uh, I'd I would also like to be able to just cover a little bit about those um, uh, those plans for the redesign of, of Plymouth, the so-called Abercrombie plans that we also talked about. So uh, I, th I think in a second uh, a second session we could we could um, we could have a look at some very interesting uh, parts of cities and designs. And uh, yes, I'd be delighted for UK Column to be doing a bit more architecture. So, Leon, can I can I say thank you very much for joining us today? It's it's been extremely interesting. We've covered a lot of ground. We haven't answered all the problems um, because we we know that uh, those planning rules are very onerous, and uh, we know there are all sorts of agendas affecting the way architecture works. But at least we've started to take the lid off what's what's happening so can i thank you very much for joining us thank you thank you very much brian much appreciated